this episode of Fat Girl Book Club. For this episode, we read the book Fat Talk Nation by Susan Greenhog. I have so many different things to talk to you about that I actually have written myself a list because there's so many things I want to get to in this intro before I play the interview. So let me get started on my list, okay? All right, to start off, uh, I want to thank my Patreon supporters. I want to say a great big huge thank you to Pascal, to Haz, to Larissa, and to Jen. I really couldn't be doing this without your guys' support, so thank you so much. Uh, If you haven't listened to some of the last few episodes, you maybe don't realize what's going on, but I'm going to be taking a break. Uh, This podcast if I had kept it going in November, it would have been three years. So we're going to get to September. We're going to get to 80 episodes. We've got one more episode after this one. And then I'm going to take a break. And uh, it is going to be a pretty lengthy break. Uh, I'm going to be taking some time to to figure out what I want to do. COVID really kind of changed things for me quite a bit. I made some really big life decisions. None of which I regret, but uh, they definitely have put me into a spot now where I need to kind of put my grown-up panties on and make some really big decisions about what it is that I want to do for myself. And so I need to do that, and I need some time and some space to be able to figure that out. As much as I hate to do it, because I really, really love this podcast, but it is a fair amount of work, as you've probably imagined, I mean... uh, you know, between the the book side of things, reading the book, getting the discussion questions together, finding the guests, uh, there's also the editing process and the marketing process. And while I am not, uh, you probably see a lot of other podcasters doing a lot more things to push their podcasts out there. Uh, I definitely do enough, uh, enough that it takes up a real big chunk of my time. So so I'm, I'm just going to put it down for a little bit. And uh, I do hope to come back. I really do in the new year. Uh, I have some great ideas. So I'm really hoping I'm going to be able to find the space to be able to do them and maybe change up the format a little bit so we can, uh, so that it's just a little easier, not only on my side to be able to put these books to you and have these great discussions, but also on the consumption side so that you guys uh are finding it, you know, just as, as easy to listen to and gaining some, some really good golden nuggets from the things that are being said. So anyway, with all that being said, please do connect with me on Instagram. If you are not already connected with me on Instagram, because my plan is, uh, that maybe once a week, I'll probably throw on an Instagram live and just talk about what I'm reading and ask you guys what you're reading. So if you like talking about books, uh, this is a great way to stay in touch and it's a great way to, talk about books (laughs) and hopefully you're here because you like talking about books because I I really do so so you will find that link down below uh there's another link that's going to be down below for a discord group so I I don't know anything about discord this is really bad of me I've heard so much about it and people say it's really really wonderful and I have joined up uh but uh so I was a guest on a podcast which you'll hear about I haven't it hasn't actually been released yet uh with the gaslit fatty so if you haven't heard of that podcast go check it out and uh Jamie the host of that podcast has started a discord group for fat podcasters and the idea being that we can 
share resources. We can talk about guests that we've had on that have been really great. We can connect people to other guests, that kind of a thing. Just be a real hub for resources. And so uh, it's a small group right now, uh, but hopefully it will grow. And so there is a link below for the Discord group. Uh, so please, if you are a fat podcaster or you thinking of podcasting, please join us. It'll be fun. I'm. It's going to be a great time. I know it will be. <laughs> so you'll find both of those links below. Okay, so now let's get into a little bit about the episode. So there is some trigger warnings for this episode. We do talk about the BMI because the book is structured around the categories of the BMI. So we really get into... Uh, discussion around BMI terminology. Uh, We also do, obviously, because of the way the book is structured, we do use the O words quite a bit. uh, And also to discuss the war on O word. So if any of that stuff sounds like it might might just trigger you, do your self-care, turn this episode off, come back next week. I've got one more episode for you that I know you're just going to love. Uh, I'm also going to tell you that at the very beginning of this episode, so my guest this week is Amanda Levitt, and I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode because I'm going on break, uh, and Amanda is the host of a podcast called Fat Theory Book Club. You'll find the link for that below. Uh, Obviously, there's some crossover. There's also some things that are very different about her podcast than my podcast, which is fantastic. It's wonderful. Uh, but there's obviously some overlap and that's why I wanted to bring her on. So you get an opportunity to meet her, find out a little bit about the podcast and she is a fat activist. And so at the very beginning of this episode, we get into some really, really wonderful suggestions from her about kind of baby steps into activism. And I think you'll find them really wonderful. I know I did. I was, I, yeah, I I was ready for some note taking at that point. (laughs) We also discuss, I don't often discuss on this podcast, the perspective of, of thinness, um, as extreme thinness being a, uh, uh, a category within our culture that gets a lot of, uh, discrimination. I recognize that that exists, but I feel like there's a lot of spaces to talk about body image and body positivity uh, for people who are kind of in those categories. But because of the nature of this book and the structure of this book, we do talk about this a little bit. And one of the things that comes up, and this was, I'm highlighting this because I think that uh, for me, it was kind of one of those mind-blowing moments that passed a little bit without me actually pointing it out. So I'm pointing it out now. Amanda talks in a sense about how fatness is a bit of a privilege because other people can very much relate to the struggle of someone who is in a larger body. They can, not everybody, but a lot of people have experienced weight gain, whether that pushes them into um, categories where, you know, they are considered fat or not. They, They know the experience. They know what it's like to feel that way. And that has impacted them. So in a sense, there is a sense of shared community. Whereas if you are in a body that is is um, so thin that there is discrimination happening for you, 
that is maybe not a shared communal experience. It's very difficult for other people to understand that experience. That was a highlight of this interview for me. And I, and keep your ears open for that. Um, and, and, uh, just see what you think about that whole thought process going on there. I think it was mind blowing. Uh, I will admit something in this interview. I, uh, <laughs> some of you know that I like to have academics on the show, uh, especially people who are professors. Uh, and Amanda is definitely an academic and I made a mistake in this episode and I'm pointing it out only because I can remember being so embarrassed when we were discussing. So we talk about the difference between qualitative and quantitative research. Quantitative like quantity is around numbers and statistics. Uh, whereas qualitative is around people's experiences and you will find I mixed that up in here, and I'm not sure it's even really made clear as we continue to go forth, which is why I'm pointing it out now. So when you hear this in the in the discussion, qualitative is around people's experiences. Quantitative, like number, is around statistics and data that have actual numbers and figures. Okay? All right. Uh, one more, th- two more things I want to point out before we jump into this. First, we discuss biomyths. This will kind of become clear as we chat. Amanda goes into a discussion around uh, what biopower is and biocitizenship is. And I mention as we're talking that within the book, Susan Greenhalg really discusses these biomyths and continually refers back to them. And I make reference to a couple, but I want to make sure that you guys get the framework that we're talking about here. So the biomyths that are in this book, these are things that people believe without real backup. It's the kind of thing uh, we talk about this in Killer Fat, Natalie Buero talked about this as being kind of this black box where we, we put these things that we think are common sense without really having a lot of discussion around whether or not they're true. So uh, the sixth biomyths talked about in this book are weight is under individual control. Parents can control or at least significantly influence the weight of young people. The BMI is a good, reliable measure of fat and health risk. Obesity and overweight are not only risk factors for other diseases, they are also diseases in themselves. Normal weight signifies good health. Abnormal weight is invariably associated with a disease. Obesity and overweight cause a host of other diseases, many of them very serious and even life-threatening. So these are the things that we kind of think are common sense. Our culture has, has kind of wrapped themselves up in them, and this is kind of the basis uh, for which we go forward in trying to lose weight and diet and control other people's weight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. All right. So I wanted to make sure you had that going forward into this discussion. Uh, lastly, we discuss a little bit about the American Medical Association's decision to classify obesity as a disease. And just as a framework around this, the, the book that we're discussing, Fat Talk Nation, doesn't get into this too, too much. Like, it talks about it, but it doesn't actually give you the context as much as other books do. And if you're interested in this, I would suggest Body of Truth by Harriet Brown. Uh, essentially, the American Medical Association put together a task force or a group of people, a committee, to go and figure out whether or not they should make obesity a disease. 
And the committee came back and said, there's just no reason to do that. It's not, there's no like symptoms of it. There's no uh, causes. Like we can't really, it, it, it's just not, uh, it doesn't match up with what a disease is in terms of like being able to specify these are the symptoms, this is the outcomes, that kind of a thing. The membership overwhelmingly agreed to go completely against their committee and decide that it is a disease. And so because of that, and Amanda will talk about about this, but because of that, there have been some repercussions and consequences and we get into it. So I just, I wanted to give you a bit of context around that part of the discussion. And now let me give you my guest's bio. It This is the best bio I think I have ever received from a guest before. I, I think this is awesome and, and kind of hilarious because Amanda is way more than this. But Amanda's bio is Amanda Levitt is a fat activist and sociologist. It's lovely. It's to the point. It's perfect. <laughs> but like I said, she's also so much more than that. And you're going to hear that in this discussion. Just so much more going on there. All right. Let me read you a little bit about the book. I'm reading from the back of the book now. In Fat Talk Nation, Susan Greenhog tells a story of today's fight against excessive pounds by giving young people the campaign's main target, an opportunity to speak about experiences that have long lain hidden in silence and shame. Featuring 45 in-depth autobiographic narratives, the book argues that attempts to rescue America from obesity-induced national decline are damaging the bodily and emotional health of young people and disrupting families and intimate relationships. Okay, I think I've talked enough. I really hope that you enjoy this discussion with Amanda Levitt about Fat Talk Nation by Susan Greenhog. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to Fat Girl Book Club. Hello. I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad we're going to talk about this book that you picked. So I'm excited to get into it. But let's start with a little bit about you. So can you introduce yourself and talk maybe a little bit about your journey? Um, I, I think that you say fat activist, but please correct me if I'm wrong and just talk a little bit about how you got there. Yeah, so currently I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. That is a mouthful. I'm getting used <laughs> to saying it. Um, but I found Fat Community probably the year after I graduated from high school, which was 2004. And I, you know, was really enthralled with the you know, fat community that was online. Um, at that time, it was really blogs based. And, you know, I really loved the blog, Big Fat Blog, because it had a really good, I mean, great title. And then also yeah. it had a really good forum that a lot of people talked on. And I, I learned quite a bit while I was, you know, still learning in a baby, baby fat activist, you know, just trying to kind of get my thoughts together because I was, you know, coming from this, trying to figure out what fat meant to me and what, you know, I thought about my own body and thought about my own politics. You know, I ran a blog for a while that was called Communications of a Fat Waitress that turned into what is now Fat Body Politics. Although I don't think I've written on there since like 2014 because grad school <laughs> just sucks all of your writing out mm. um, and you don't want to do it anymore. So in 2011, I started a nonprofit called Love Your Body Detroit um, that was a pull off of 
um, the Nationalization for Women's Love Your Body Day. I really wanted it to be a little bit more political because, you know, if you know anything about the National Organization for Women, um, they do a lot of really political work. But then for Love Your Body Day, it was really about, you know, fighting against mainstream media's ideas of what an <laughs> ideal body was but it was often yeah. for like thin women and it really you know it was about eating disorders it wasn't about politicizing fatness um and so i kind of you know i some of the first political conferences i went to were now conferences and they were really great for me to like meet other organizers and really kind of start me off on my organizer journey, but that just wasn't what I was looking for. So I did that for a few years. Then I entered grad school. I, since 2013, I've been a co-coordinator of Abundant Bodies. It's a um, network gathering at Allied Media Conference in Detroit, Michigan. Conference happens now every other year, but it's a community space that's specifically for Black and Brown and Indigenous and other folks of color, um, supersized fats, disabled people, trans folks, queer people, everyone that's fat and every other type of uh, marginalization, really trying to, you know, create a space that is for non-white folks, particularly because, you know, fat liberation tends to be very white, you know, and as the only white organizer, that means that I tend to do a lot of the, the background work, which is fine. That's the kind of stuff I like doing. So I do also do a lot of community organizing work. I, you know, this is a very long introduction. I don't know if you want my whole history, but <laughs> no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Cause I, I think sometimes, well, I don't know for me, I have gotten to a point now where I want to start taking these types of steps into things that are a little bigger and helping, mm -hmm. um, organize things, I guess. So having yeah. someone on who's been through that journey is, is really, really inspiring. So like, what was kind of the first little maybe baby step that you took that someone who maybe is looking at doing this kind of work could maybe start with? Yeah. So, I mean, Love Everybody Detroit really was probably the biggest step that I did in that I was doing, you know, running a nonprofit. And when I say it was a nonprofit, like we didn't make money. We didn't have like a, you know, we didn't have a 501c3 status. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't have any of that. I think one year we ran on like $500 that I Wow. that I did. Yeah. It's very, very small. <laughs> like we would do things like poster campaigns or we went to pride with a yay scale and let people, which if <laughs> folks don't know about a yay scale, it's, you know, Marilyn Wan kind of really brought it into the fold in, in fat liberation, but it's a, you know, a scale that you basically hack. And instead of it saying numbers, it says compliments. And so we went to pride and did that. And we just did like some guerrilla activism, yeah. you know? Yeah. There's, but there's a lot of different ways you can do it. I, I really think the best way to do it is find out what your activist community is around you because, you know, we are, we are multidimensional people. We are not just fat people. You know, we experience a lot of different things. And also, even if you don't experience it, there's a lot of really great work that you can be part of. So like, you know, I've done things that weren't, fat specific. I helped organize a protest against a men's rights group that was trying to have a conference in Detroit. And we got, we got, had probably about like 500 people at the protest and we got them kicked out of the hotel. And so they had to have their, their sad little conference out at a VFW <laughs> hall in the suburbs. Um, 
but it was, you know, it was a really good experience. It was, I was organizing with people that, you know, do, uh, do pro-choice organizing and do, um, clinic escorting. That's where I met my one best friend, Mike, who ended up being in my, um, PhD program as well. I met him. He was, he had a megaphone and he was like blaring Lady Gaga (laughs) while we were on the protest. And, you know, what I really found though, is that a lot of people, when you think about fatness and, and politics, a lot of people are actually pretty open to it. I mean, particularly if you're in a political space, because mm-hmm. people can think about, you know, how racism and, and gender, you know, sexism and misogyny, yeah, misogyny, sexism, mm-hmm. same thing, mm-hmm. transphobia, and all of these other types of discrimination are very much about the body. And so, you know, I think that's good. Making connections with your activist community, being kind of involved in the political scene can yeah. kind of help you meet other people. And then you also, you know, can kind of bring your own stuff to it and see how you can be part of it. The first time I was part of Allied Media Conference, my friend Cicely uh, submitted a a session for both of us. She didn't tell me about it until it was accepted, which is <laughs> Cicely is the only person that's allowed to do that. <laughs> But, you know, we did, I talked about fat liberation and then she taught people how to like hack (laughs) t-shirts and how to get them to like to fit or like, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. but it was great. I mean, it was people forties all the way down to teenagers, you know, because they have a teen track and a kid's track at, at LA media conference. And so it was great. It was a really great way to kind of, you know, talk about fat liberation, but do it where you're, you know, doing more what sociologists refer to as like public sociology mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah I mean also like you could also just have parties I mean you know do I mean clothing swaps have always been a really big one and I I don't mind clothing swaps I think they definitely can be good but it's really hard if you don't have a lot of people to do it with uh we would do you know love everybody Detroit we did a bunch of different things so we did guerrilla organizing we did poster campaigns around campus and so we would just post you know put posters everywhere we would have you know dinners where we talked about different books or brought a book and we could do book swaps you know it really the sky's the limit I mean you can do you know whatever you want to you can do it I mean you know fat folks are the world wants us to believe that fatness is taking over the world the reality is is that fat people particularly people with a BMI over 40, it's a very small segment of the population. Um, and that's really who I tend to think of as more likely to be members of the fat liberation movement. Obviously, you know, BMI is a terrible measure of anything, but population wise, it at least tells you that there's a very small portion of the population. I think it's like 5.4% of the U.S. population has right. a BMI over 40, Right. you know? Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's so many different ways that you can do it. Right. You can also just join some fat groups on Facebook and talk to people or, you know, join, talk about it on Twitter. TikTok apparently has a really good fat community as well. You know, go figure. I'm not on TikTok. I'm on there every once in a while. Yeah. I, I like, like scrolling in the middle of the night. I think they call (laughs) that doom scrolling. I, I like looking at, you know, I like, yeah, I like videos, but also it can be a lot if you're not on there. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, I loved all those suggestions. That was fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, Yeah, no problem. I I know talking about the BMI, this book that we were talking about uh, really talked about the BMI. It went into it quite a bit. It even put the chapters into BMI categories. So we we really jump into that there. 
the book was called Fat Talk Nation. Uh, Susan Greenhalg. I'm probably that saying sounds that right. I don't know. <laughs> I'm really bad with names. Um, that sounds right. Uh, but you picked this book. So I'm curious to know how you found out about it and what appealed to you about it. So I, when I started my podcast, Fat Theory Book Club, I created a list of books and I had, I posted it and told people to tell me if I'm missing anything. And so this was one of the books that I was missing. And I was really interested in reading it because she's at Harvard and there's some pretty terrible faculty members at Harvard that have done some really bad things towards fat liberation, but also, you know, I think in the beginning of the book, she thanked Kaplan or Kathleen Flegel. I think that's how she says her name. And, you know, she wrote, she published this article that really took the BMI to task in the early to mid 2000s. I can't remember the exact date. And the response was really swift and really harsh from the nutrition's department on from Harvard. I think the, um, what is it? The podcast maintenance phase talked about this whole thing for an episode. Um, and so I was really interested to see, you know, kind of what, what they were talking about. Cause once you've been in the fat community for such a long time, it's, you kind of are reading the same thing over and over again. And so this book, while good, it really isn't, I, I would feel it, I feel more like it's fat liberation adjacent. It's not really like mm. it's not put directly into fat community. And mostly because they're not, I mean, obviously there are fat people that they, this, you know, they were looking at um, writing samples for the most part, but, you know, the or writings from students that she had. And they, as you said, they had a, all these, a wide range of BMIs, which means that it wasn't fat specific. It was really talking about, you know, how individuals feel about fat um, and how it has been part of their life, which I would, I like to make a differentiation between that, because I think if you're just talking about fat, that's a very broad subject. It could mean a lot of different things. Whereas if you're talking about fat liberation, it is, you know, you're really talking about the political and discriminatory experiences that fat people experience. And so it's right. Yeah. It's, it's very different to me. Yeah, no, I agree. That's a great distinction um, that it wasn't really, I mean, overall general message is that, you know, everybody, no matter what size of body is going to struggle with their body image, which no shit, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we live in this world where it's like, okay, pretty much all of us feel that way. Um, and you can see why, like, it's just kind of obvious, but that was her general message was that all of us are being wrapped up in this war on fat. And it, it wasn't really a big distinction uh, where she really gets into, which I was think I was kind of hoping for was where we would start to talk about some of these really big systematic issues that impact yeah. being fat. And it just didn't, she just didn't really go there. So yeah, that was, that was yeah. disappointing, but it was good. It was really good. Like you said, she has this focus on these ethnographies and uh, so I, because I know that you've done a lot of reading and I know that a lot of academic books, you know, were really big on quantitative uh, research of some kind, like mm -hmm. um, Charlotte Cooper with Fat Activism does a lot of interviews, uh, Killer Fat, Natalie Boero, she also did quite a number of interviews with her book. What sets what this lady did apart from what those were doing? 
So all of those are actually qualitative research. So quantitative mm. is numbers. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> yes. right. Well, nope. it's not, I missed that up. Well, yeah, it's okay. And, um, you know, I obviously you sent me these questions beforehand. And so I was thinking about this, but yeah. So, I mean, if we're doing a quantitative analysis, it's going to be a large data set. And the reality is, is that there isn't a large data set available to talk about fatness. You know, I, I really started thinking about it and, you know, I talked a little bit about it with Marilyn Juan on my podcast that, you know, there really isn't a lot of data about fat experience and just talking to, or even including fatness as an identity marker in the way that we think about it as like race and gender and sexuality and all of those other identity markers that for me as a sociologist, we, we think about. So, you know, a good example is I, when I was taking my like advanced quantitative me- methods, I'm also a qualitative researcher. So like I, I took a stats class just because I, you know, wanted to learn more. But what was really interesting was we had to do our final paper and we had to use a large data set. And so I used, oh my God, it's the national, it's NHANE. So it's the National Health and Nutrition Estimation Survey, I believe. And it's like a 10,000 uh, and this is going to totally make sense to your to your question too, um, but I'm going off on a little tangent. That's for okay. A that's okay. Uh, please, <laughs> please do. So yeah. So the so the survey has about ten thousand participants, and they do it every year. It started in the '70s. It used to be like every five years or every ten years, but now they do it every year. And I was looking, so I calculated BMI and I was looking at like how many people were actually in the sample. And once you get above a BMI of 50, there's only 16 people in this entire survey of 10,000 people. And this is a survey that is often used by health researchers that this is probably the largest survey that's so broad. I mean, they do everything from like measuring people's risks to asking about like their daily food intake. It's a very in-depth survey. So when you only have 16 people, it it really is not a it's not a, a a true accurate, you know, accurate representation of an entire group. Now, you could argue if you're a quantitative researcher, well, this is a very small, you know, group of people. So 16 people is is fine, but it's just not, you know, for me as someone that's thinking about fatness and thinking about that experience, it is it's really hard to say, oh, well, this sample, you know, is a good representation. Like what I would say is, well, we don't have enough people to actually make any assumptions about that group of people. Um, Particularly when we start seeing that as people get into higher BMIs, there is a higher correlation with other health issues. But the question is, okay, is it, it's not inherently the, the body or fat, fatness that is causing it, but all of these other social issues that potentially are causing it. And so quantitative research is really terrible at this. I mean, I think that one day I hope in the future that people will, you know, really start looking at higher people with a higher BMI and seeing what's going on. But most research that's looking at fatness is really Mm -hmm. doing a qualitative method. And so that, you know, going back to the three books you're talking about, you know, all three of them are kind of just looking at something different, you know, and looking at a different level, uh, you know, Charlotte Cooper's book and, and Natalie Pereira's book, you know, they do kind of talk about institutions, but that's very sociological of them. Um, mm-hmm. We yes. are very interested in, in social institutions, 
whereas like anthropology is kind of our like our cousin in the social sciences and <laughs> okay. so she is really looking more at interpersonal interactions so interactions between individuals so that's why a lot of the things that we're we're reading in this book are are about what her students that are writing all of these ethnographies which i would actually refer to them as like an autoethnography because they're talking about themselves and you know they're talking about the ways that they've been taught about fat and fatness and you know how you know fat has been is very normalized in the way that we talk to people um and so it's a very specific thing that they're looking at which is you know just research in general we all look at very specific things which can be kind of annoying if you're not an academic and you want them to talk about everything <laughs> that that is true that is true that's yes. one of the biggest yeah, as a reader, I'm reading through going, but why aren't you talking about this? But why aren't you talking about that? So it makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and there's so many books, you know, <laughs> so it's like you, even if this one doesn't, you can go to another one. You can yeah. even, you know, if if you learn how to read like an academic, you don't have to read every page either. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, read the beginning of the chapter. This right. is, I teach all of my students this, read the beginning yeah. of the chapter, read the end of the chapter, Yeah. you know, read the, yeah. the last, you know, the first couple chapters, read the right. last couple, you yeah. kind of get the meat yeah. of everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to be fair, these autoethnographies were very interesting. Like I, I did find yeah. um, reading the words of the person who's telling us their experience was at times very heartbreaking, very sad, put yeah. some things into perspective. Like it was like, if you don't have to read it, like you said, if you're reading it to, to be able to pull something out, to put it in a paper or in an academic yeah. context, um, but reading it for enjoyment, I found these autoethnographies to be really, some of them very relevant and uh, validating to my own experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, same thing here. I mean, I I absolutely read the book uh, for you, but also there's, there is so much um, similarity, I think, regardless of body size, the things that you know, can be very different. I think she did talk about when she went into kind of looking at BMI, but this was a really good, you know, if, if anyone's interested in going to grad school, this is a really good example of like what a um, social science dissertation would look like, you know, because you are pulling, you're having, inter you know, I, I do long format interviews for my dissertation, but, you know, you can do an ethnography. This is a, like, I think this would Mm, this would potentially be like considered a content analysis in sociology. So it's a little bit, you know, we do use different words, but you know, you're analyzing it and seeing like what's similar. And so you see across the entire book that there are a lot of similarities, regardless of where people fall on the BMI scale that, you know, we, we all are kind of brought into this, this culture and society where weight is so important, but the food that we eat is so important and, and what we eat and how much we eat and how we dress ourselves. And, and it's often the people that are closest to us that are doing some, some of the worst harm. Um, and I think this book really, really showed yeah, that. So totally, totally. Well, she, she talks about this concept of biocitizenship. Um, are yeah. you able to talk a little bit about what that meant for you and, and kind of what your thoughts were on around that? Yeah, so I did have to look it up because uh, I definitely don't use that terminology in my own research, but that's that's fine. So, and once I knew the 
where that term came from, I was like, oh, okay, never mind. I understand what it is. So, so biocitizenship and really comes from, uh, something that, uh, Foucault talks about. So Foucault is really interested in, um, you know, really interested in the concept of power and where power comes from. And so he came up with this term called biopower, which is basically we're talking about life. So, you know, obviously we are humans, we are organisms that live on the planet. We are concerned about how, how we can extend our life, how we can, you know, harness life to, to have a better outcome for ourselves, but also the general population. I really think this is kind of where like epidemiology kind of comes from, at least if we're thinking about it as a, as a social issue that isn't just about um, disease, but also about what access people have to goods. So when we think about power as a sociologist, we're really thinking about social, economic, and political power. But also if we're if we're adding on to that, we can think about it biopower as a another form of another thing that if you have more of it, you're going to be able to have a longer life. You're going to be able to have uh, more access to all of the things that you need okay. to live longer. And what we see at a population level is that, you know, people that have, say, again, I'm going to keep using the term biopower, but as <laughs> as we have more of that, it means that we are able to harness it and have greater access to things like healthcare right. and, you know, access to fresh food fresh fruits and vegetables, access to clean spaces to move your body and all of these other things that we consider to be very much part of this idea of health. And so what I think Greenhog is really trying to point to um, and what people, when they talk about good biocitizens, is that they are, you know, someone who has a normative body that is performing Mm -hmm. health in a specific way, which Mm -hmm. also means, you know, because we think health is performed and that it results in a specific body type, we think that we can look at a body and say that, oh, they're, you know, a good biocitizen, or I would say that they have a, you know, normative body type. They have a good body. I really think about it in, you know, because as a sociologist, we really think about labor and the reality is, is that we are all expected to be good laborers because we live in a capitalist society. And so, you know, what we would consider to be a good laboring body is one that people would assume is not going to have to take sick days, not going to have to need accommodations to do the work, not going to need other things than just showing up and doing it. And so, you know, that's kind of the the distinction between bio-citizen, which is, for me, is right. a interesting terminology um, <laughs> that we... You know, I'm sure I read something in grad school with it. I just don't, you know, I just don't think about it in that term, those terms. Right, right. Well, and she liked to put bio in front of a lot of different words. Yes. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I mean, it, they all made sense. She wasn't just trying to make things up. But I'm not saying oh, that, yeah. but, but she did like to put bio in front of everything. So she talks about those bio myths, yeah. um, which for me was kind of, uh, I could keep referring back to those as I was reading the rest mm-hmm. of her work because she, she constantly reflects back on those um, to make her point, basically. Uh, yeah. And I mean, these are all things that we just kind of take for granted culturally. If we haven't done this work, we just don't know, you know, like yeah. BMI is a good health measure. Um, 
what were some other ones that weight is under individual control that parents yeah. have some sort of ability to help people, uh, mm-hmm. to help their kids, uh, control their weight. Uh, anyway, so those were just for the listener's benefit. Those were some of the things that she kind of went into in kind of that section, that framework that she sets up. Yeah. And then she does those chapters on kind of where she compartmentalizes the people that she had doing the autoethnographies into their BMI. So, um, she talks about the obese category, about the overweight category. Did you think that she differentiated between those people and their experiences in the book? I mean, she did because there, there was different chapters on them. Um, but also (laughs) that's like the easiest way to tell that she did. But I think because I mean, yes, in that she, you know, she did present different, um, findings for the, you know, for each chapter, but also like when you're looking at fat talk often, the things that there is a lot of similarities between them. I'm like, I should have written down the the actual page of it, but, you know, I think that there was a distinction thinking about how, you know, she said a lot of her students were overweight um, or in that overweight category. And, you know, I think the most interesting thing from that is that often people, if you don't know your BMI, like most people are in that overweight category because how we define fatness is Mm -hmm. silly and it also (laughs) is really it it isn't giving a good most you know you're a lay person is really bad at being able to write an articulate understanding of what body body types mean and what that means because of bmi and so you know i do think that there obviously there is distinctions but it's it's still kind of I mean, all the categories, you can kind of see how it gets a little muddled because some of those experiences are very similar. I, for me, I found when I was reading that I felt that there was a tone put in by the author when she was writing about, uh, the obese category where she was basically saying these people truly are fat. And there was a morality around that. Whereas when she was talking about the overweight category, she was saying these people aren't really fat. Um, but they think they are. And so, yeah. And it was, it was more of a, the use of words and the use of tone where I kind mm-hmm. of felt like there was a bit of a distinction being made for her. Um, yeah. and it was a bit of a moral tone. Uh, and, 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 and it was weird to me, but sometimes I would find that myself rereading things going, I feel like there's a disconnect here between what she wants to say, which is that these biomyths are stupid and not actually reality that you can't actually mm-hmm. control, uh, weight and body size. And on the other hand, I sometimes felt like she was creeping into this territory where she felt like there was a moral judgment to be made around bodies. I don't know if you felt that at all, or if that was just me. Um. (laughs) I mean, I think overall, the book really kind of pushes towards a acceptance of this idea that obesity is bad. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that is really the tone that I I read throughout the book, not just in this chapter. So that's probably why it was very much, you know, the, and, and probably the distinction that you're making too, is that, you know, these are actually fat people that actually have health problems and shouldn't be fat, even though we don't know how to make fat people thin, because she definitely said that throughout the book, 
but she still, you know, brought in the framework of the the issue of, I mean, how the war on fat became, a, you know, was even coined yeah. from, you know, a Surgeon General and, you know, just discussing the obesity epidemic. And I'm using, you know, air quotes around that, but that, you know, it, it really was just kind of accepting that narrative but trying to kind of push away from it a little bit to make it so that people that are in that overweight category are actually okay. But, you know, this is where obviously she also talked about people that are underweight. And I know we're going to talk about that in a sec, but like, you know, this is kind of where, particularly when you're looking at like Kathleen Flegel's um, work, she really, you know, that data, which was a content or was um, quantitative analysis, but like her research really showed that people that are in that overweight category have a, you know, lower mortality and morbidity rate than people that are considered to be normal weight. Um, and so I feel like this is her trying to, this is Susan Greenhall really trying to kind of expand the understanding of what fat is, but kind of at the same time, throwing fat people, people that are considered obese, under the bus a little bit. Yeah. 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 That's exactly how I felt about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I think when you're, when you are accepting the, you know, the idea that fatness is caused by things right. and you, you know, and are really asking that question again, I'm going to, I'm trying not to answer your questions before you ask me them, <laughs> okay. but okay. you know, yeah, you know, I, 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 I think it is, and this was something that I remember a faculty member is now the chair of my department. He, this was like, you know, in 2014, I did a couple different like interviews and they, he watched one of them and he's like, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't matter why someone's unhealthy. It doesn't matter why someone yeah. is fat. It doesn't matter. None of these things matter because it's about stigma, you know? Yes. And so I think that's kind of where, you know, when I'm thinking about fatness and I think, you know, Borero and, and Cooper as well, you know, they are treating fatness as it's, it's a thing. It exists. It doesn't matter if we find some amazing magical pill that will make everyone thin and everyone's body look the same. The reality is, is that fat people will still exist yeah. because not everyone wants the pill. Not everyone gives a shit about the pill, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that it was really that, you know, and I, you know, she does talk about how fat is bad, you know, or that fat people are treated as that it's bad and they deal with stigma. But I think it is, again, just, I'm not giving her a pass, but also, you know, her research yeah. was very narrow. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, especially because she really, and, and I mean, I think for her, she just kind of leaned into this was that she was mm -hmm. doing it in California. And it was a very specific place that she was focusing on. And she talks about her reasons why, but she leaned into that hard and said, I am narrowing down what my research is going to look like. And this is what it is. And this is why it is. Um, yeah. And I've talked about this too, you know, even like Sabrina Strings book, um, mm -hmm. Fearing the Black Body is really lovely. But when you're looking at research that's done by people at Ivy League universities, they are mm -hmm. kind of, they're like 10 years behind like any type of like <laughs> community work that's going on. And so, you know, I had Raria Tariq on to talk about fearing the black body. And she was like, I don't think this is for black people. <laughs> and I'm right. like, it absolutely yep. isn't. It's talking yes. about how white people think about black yes. people and where that came from, you know? And so it is, 
it, it still is amazing and really, really important. We need to be able to have that lens of thinking about how fat phobia is rooted in anti-Blackness. But at the end of the day, like when you are fat liber- in fat liberation community and your work is seeped in thinking about anti-Blackness, you're going to read this book and be like, I don't care what white people think about me. Like that's, and I, I understand. And so I think that this is where like every book isn't necessarily going to be for you. But right. at the same time, yeah. I think this book is a good introduction for someone that has never thought about fatness and has never thought about how they are interacting with other people and how those interpersonal interactions can be so incredibly important to understanding your sense of self. I mean, not just about fat, but like, that's how we learn about gender and how we learn about race and, and, you know, all of these other social things we're socialized in our own families. And so we're socialized with this type of talk about our bodies. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's, that's exactly it. I think you nailed it. Those interpersonal connections, which I, I guess when I think about it, I'm not sure that there's another book that does that, uh, in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is good. I mean, I, you know, I think there, there may be, and I always, I'm, uh, put my tinfoil hat on. I always think that potentially not wanting to like say the, the war on obesity is bullshit, is also because like the war on obesity is like a capitalist agenda that like that Ivy League universities uphold, you know, they do it because they they make money, you know, from it. So, you know, I think like 10 years ago, there was a sociologist at Harvard, and I think he actually is at, he might be at Princeton now, but he came out with this study about how fatness is contagious through social yeah. networks. And I mean, it's just like, one, it's, silly like it just you know there's so many different ways to think about how it's a really bad idea like when you think of contagion in the middle of a pandemic like you're not like I don't sneeze on someone and make them fat like that's just not that's not how fat works and so you know it was just a a terrible Terrible analysis of it but dude was getting tech talks and like getting a lot of attention. It was ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. And it's because he's at an Ivy league university, you know, they're very insular. Um, and so a lot of, you know, research is, you know, fat studies research while there is a little bit, I mean, we have Sabrina strings at UCLA, we have Abigail Segui at UCLA, but they are also not fat people. So I think that that's all these people are not fat people. So yeah, very true. Uh, yeah, that study drove me nuts because it made its way into the cult of personal development. There were so many personal development books, lots of personal development books love to talk about weight and weight loss because it's low hanging fruit. Uh, yeah. And so that study made it into a whole whack load of books that were published right around that time that were like mainstream personal development books. And I would hear about it on all these podcasts I would listen to. I had to stop listening to so many podcasts because I was like, if you're going to quote that study, you do not know what the hell you're talking about. Like, I'm no academic, yeah. but um, I I know a little something about studies and that, no, like, no, you shouldn't be quoting this study. <laughs> Have you even yeah. read it? You know, um, so it was, it was really frustrating um, because mm-hmm. that, that study got a lot of press. Yeah. I mean, and I think that this is the issue of, you know, when we are thinking about research, a really good example of this is in what I have taught research methods. I remember, God, this was like 2011. This is when I was an undergrad, but I was really annoyed about this. My roommate said that men ignore women because they, because the set, the tone of our voice 
And this was like a news story that was like all over the fucking place. And so I was looking for, I looked at it up. And so, you know, when we are learning about science and mm-hmm. it, scientific reporting is terrible. Um, there's a really good article that Abigail Segui and um, Renee Emiling did called um, Fat in the Fire that was looking at the journal of, what is it? The Journal of the American Medical Association. And so they looked at, they had a special obesity, what is it? Special obesity uh, version of that journal. And so what they did was look at the actual articles in the journal and then what was written about in the press. And it was absolutely sensationalized what they were writing about in the press. And, and so this this article that my roommate was talking about, like it was everywhere. She heard about it on the radio, it was local radio, like trying to scientifically make a distinction of why men ignore women was like the most ridiculous shit ever. But I ended up finding the actual research because it was so hard to find, but I found it. It was a study about people who are schizophrenic and why they are more likely to hear male voices than female voices. It was like, it was about schizophrenia. Like it wasn't even about like gender or anything else. It was, no. you know, it was, yeah. And so there's just so many, so many issues with it. And so, I mean, this is critical thinking 101 is that if you right. are, if you're reading something in an, in an article, you should probably think about, well, is that what the study actually says? Because, right. you know, right. journalistic integrity is like not, not where it is, you know, and I can point to so many times that that happens in talking about fatness in in scientific journals too. I mean, in not just science, well, scientific articles, but also right. in journals. Like there is right. a, you have to also think about the money that is going into a yeah. study and where that study is and how are they actually analyzing it? Most people don't yeah. have access to journals to be able to actually read the article. No. Yeah. Yeah. These are things yeah. I rant about all the time. So. No, it's so, and it's so true because I know uh, I, you know, you, you just have a casual conversation with someone in your everyday life, someone who's maybe never, uh, never really thought about it. And they, they come out with something like this, the contagious thing or the women's voices thing. And you mm-hmm. sort of go, have you really thought about this for just one second? You know, yeah. like, I mean, let's, let's, let's dig into it. And people, sometimes people, I make people uncomfortable. I do it all the time, but I'm always like, "Mm, where did you hear that? (laughs) And then they tell me, oh, off the news, whatever. And then you go, well, maybe we could look that up. Can you find a, can you, can you find an actual paper there? We'll we'll try to see what we can do because there are research. If some, if people are interested, there are groups um, on Facebook that do fat study work that if you are really interested and really want to see a study, they could probably get some yeah. type of access for you, mm-hmm. um, to be able to see stuff. So yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And like yeah. I said, I'm not, um, you know, like, I mean, I went and did a BA, but it was in English and history. So nothing science related whatsoever. So, uh, <laughs> so I have some critical thinking skills, but not in the research kind of method stuff. So, yeah, but I don't think you need to be like super, super, super into it in order to mm-hmm. realize that maybe a little more digging is in order, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's also hard. I know, um, I think I was in the beginning of my master's when an article mm-hmm. came out, I was collecting data because I I studied trolling for my master's thesis. I collected uh, trolling messages off of the blog, This is Thin Privilege. And it started just because I was, I started it as an art project because I thought that it was ridiculous 
ridiculous, like how much we were being trolled. And it was like May of 2013 or 2014 was when I started helping moderate that page. And the first day I was on there, someone like spent so much time writing this like very long post where all they did was copy and paste the word fat like a thousand times. And then they kept sending it. So like the entire page was just said fat. And I'm like, you are on a place where like, we don't, we're not hurt by the word fat. So you just spent a lot of like a lot of time wasting your own life, which is great. But so I found out about this article. (laughs) It became very, I I really enjoy when people spend a lot of their free time (laughs) doing things that have no impact on me. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. So we would often, we would get, um, and this was part of my, my research was, you know, we would get people that you could really tell were trolls because they would tell us that they were coming from a specific trolling site like Reddit or 4chan or other places. Um, but there was an article that came out that was talking about how they did a meta-analysis, which is basically they look at a bunch of different studies and do an analysis of that um, to try to create new research. And so they were looking and they said that they found that, you know, there's no way to be fat and metabolically healthy, which basically means that you're fat, but that all of your, you know, your metabolic system, your, you know, all of your organs, all of that stuff is still working well that you, you know, your cholesterol and pressure by blood pressure and like all of that stuff. And so it was interesting because that article came out and we just started getting like, I think in one day we got like a hundred messages emailing us or sending us because it was on Tumblr. So they were sending us messages saying, Hey, we found out that everything that you stand for is bullshit, you know? And so they were like sending it to us because of that. But then um, there was a fat studies listserv that I think still active, but I don't know how much um, that was started by Marilyn Wan. And it was great because people were like tearing apart this article to explain why it was wrong. And there's just the, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I can't remember the name of the article, but there were a couple of really good blog posts as well. The, like the way that they analyze the data, but also their conclusions of the article was not actually acknowledging the data that was that they're showing in their own research. And so this is at the end of the day, like most faculty members to get tenure, if you're on a tenure track, you have to have articles that are published in a journal, but also Mm -hmm. getting, getting press coverage of an, you know, of your article, having Mm -hmm. a really catchy title, getting, you know, media coverage can be very important Mm -hmm. because it, it, uplifts you know the university you're at um it can make them think that you're you know better because it's not just about tenure requirements but it's also about your department voting for you to get tenure and then it has to go to a dean to get you know and so there's this whole political process going on and so even just research and the analysis and how it's written can be very damning and for me like when i'm coming in and in this book is a good example of it when they are talking about the war, you know, quote unquote, war on obesity, but they're Mm -hmm. not really talking about how it's bullshit, at least in depth. I mean, she mentions it, mentions Abigail Segui, which like her book, What's Wrong with Fat, absolutely tackled this issue. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's, this is where social science, there's a political frame that you want to believe in, and you're going to kind of write around that frame. Right. All science is an imperfect science, but social sciences, it's not physics. Can't, even though people would like to pretend that it is, you just, it's, it's hard. So yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. uh, Yeah. Uh, Everything. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, one of the things I definitely wanted to get to before we end was 
the 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 fact that she did and and i mean i guess it, it speaks to the structure of the book she kind of had to um but she she talks about the obese category the overweight category the normal category and then she talks about the underweight category mm-hmm. um I, I guess i'm i'm just you know i don't talk a lot about thin privilege on this show yeah just because i think they have enough spaces to speak out um yeah. if they've got body image issues there's lots of body positive body positive places that will will take them and allow mm-hmm. them to do those things um but she really goes into depth here um and i'm i'm wondering what your thoughts were around that chapter in particular i mean i think that it's good to to think about that all of us i mean even the normal weight category when she was talking about it that all of us are socialized into a society that teaches us that a certain body type is what we have to look for. I really liked that she talked about the gendered ideals of men, particularly that if you are underweight, you know, there's an assumption that you are big, muscular. I mean, look at all of the the dudes that are supposed to be like super ripped and everything. I But I, again, these are like very gendered ideals. And so I think that this is the frame that she was using. And so she was looking broadly across those categories to really show that fat talk is something that impacts everyone, but also just the expectations on our bodies in general, Um, because it's not even just thinness that people want. They want you to have one of the first book that I ever read was um, Suzanne Bordeaux's book, Unbearable Weight, which I think is really good if you're interested in learning about body ideals writ large and and gendered ideals particularly. But she really is focusing on the gendered ideals of predominantly white women. And that is, it's not just to be thin, but it's to have a body that's without blemish, to not have cellulite, to not have hair on your body. If you are tan, that you don't have tan lines. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can look at it. Until recently, freckles weren't cool, you know, like, and our so our gendered ideas and our expectations of what beauty means can is changes so much over time that that it really does make it so that everyone feels like their body is being attacked. And so the the blog this is thin privilege was really to talk about how to talk about how yes like you can have you can have a, a shitty feeling about your body but that doesn't mean you deal with institutional discrimination mm-hmm. um and so i think for this book with everyone she is talking about how people feel about their individual body not how institutions treat them because of their body i think that there right, right. absolutely are issues that can happen i mean we we definitely know there's a lot of research about people that are in that underweight category you know depending on you know there can be there can be health issues because of that but that isn't a it isn't something that is necessarily discussed and if you were to go to the doctor and say hey like i'm you know i've lost weight even if you're in that underweight category because we fear fatness so much they're probably you know you might still also fall under under the you know the guise of of treatment you know and so there's there's a wide variety of issues with that as well. And again, this isn't a fat specific book. It's a fat talk specific book, which I, you mm-hmm. know, is a distinction that I think is, is important. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, on the one hand, I was sort of like, I don't really want to talk about this. <laughs> on the other hand, um, it was interesting to hear, to hear some of those stories. And it was interesting to hear her analysis of those stories. Um, again, I felt like there was a bit of a tone here coming across about, Mm -hmm. um, about how 
how um like how we should feel really bad for these people. Whereas I never felt like there was that tone when we talk about the overweight and obese categories. Yeah. I felt like she was overemphasizing the fact that we should feel, we should feel bad for these people. Um, and maybe that just speaks to the culture we're in that, you know, there's probably a lot of people maybe like me who are like, I don't really want to feel bad for them. Um, so, you know, I mean, that point, like you said, that point does come across that this is, this is something we are all kind of in the same boat uh, uh, it impacts us different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is also the tone that you are, you're picking up on is a really good example of privilege. Like if you are more likely to have empathy and sympathy for a group of people because Mm -hmm. of their body type, whereas Mm -hmm. you don't have it for other people, well, that's how you're privileging people. I mean, privileges, Mm -hmm. it is, as Peggy McIntosh, a person who came up with white privilege said, it's like you have a backpack and for someone that has more privilege, they have more tools in that backpack to use. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have people see what you're going through and have empathy and and sympathy for that, it means Mm -hmm. that you are more likely to be humanized. Whereas if people don't see that empathy and sympathy for you Mm. when you're at a higher weight range, then that means that you are being discriminated against and dealing with interpersonal discrimination. Right, um, right. And so, yeah, there's, there's absolutely yeah. that as well. I get the, the, it's the, the apathy and the frustration of it always being about thin people. Um, and I get, you know, for me as I, I really tried to be empathetic in the fact that when I am talking to people about fatness, it is probably the first time that they have ever even heard a person say the word fat (laughs) without being terrified. I mean, I went, you know, I went to, uh, I, I was on a panel at U of M university of Michigan last fall. Um, and it was about disabled people and, um, sexuality and like consent culture. And I said, you know, I have a disability, I'm fat. And like people came up to me after and like, we've never heard anyone use the word fat before. And that is, that, that is a comment that I have heard for the last 15 years. And you just kind of, while doing fat liberation work, you, you know, you obviously can be annoyed about it. But for me, I think it's getting people to think outside of their own experience and also to be, sit in their experience and sit in the fact that we all are taught to feel really terrible about ourselves in so many different ways. I mean, we're taught to feel terrible about our our weight, the way that our body is shaped, the the way that we look, like the texture of our hair. Like there are so many different ways that we are taught to feel terrible about ourselves. And so for me, I'm I'm always interested in getting that like one little touch point with someone. And if I can even get them to think a little differently about themselves, maybe down the road they'll think differently about fat right. people. That's it doesn't, a good point. you know, that's a good yeah, point. It's, that's a good point. You know, it's a uh, yeah. I, I feel like when I was very much like in my early activist days, I was like, no, fuck that. You know, let's, yeah. let's, you know, yeah. let's kick over trash cans and like ruin everyone's yeah. day and make them like, hate, like love fat people and yeah. like all of that. And I think that that is, there's different types of, you know, there's different levels to activism. Yeah. And I, I do not, I am totally fine with people that are like, I don't want to talk about thin people. I don't think I would have like, I, I probably would have, if I, I mean, I was like, oh, you know, of course we have to talk about underweight people. Like I, you know, as I was reading it, there was definitely a, ugh, but same time I have to, 
I'm hoping that, you know, someone who is underweight or even in that normal weight range, they're reading this and they feel like there is something that, that they connect with because maybe that will stop them from being an asshole to their fat coworker. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, yeah. So this book was published in 2015. It, from the, from her discussion, it looks like most of the research was done in 2011, 2012. Do you think that there has been any shifts or any changes uh, in terms of the things she talks about? I mean, when I was thinking about this question, the first thing that I thought about was that in 2013, obesity was declared a disease. Mm. Um, And I think that that really allowed for the medical community, medical industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, to kind of, you know, run wild with this. I mean, this is my dissertation. I shifted. I was just looking at fat stigma. Now I'm looking at fat people's experiences in in medical settings because I, one, there was like a contingent of people on TikTok that were fat or had been told to lose weight when they went to the doctor. And then it turned out that they were diagnosed with cancer. Um, And that to me was like horrific, you know? And so I, I think that there has really been in the medical community, fatness has continued to be medicalized. We have bariatric surgery centers popping up all over the place. There are, you know, a wide variety of um, medical devices that people are, you know, trying to, to pass. I've been in like a little hole, you know, a little rabbit hole looking at medical devices. Cause the intro of my dissertation is like kind of doing a, an analysis of all of the different medical devices that they have. Like there was a doctor in Venezuela that created a patch that gets sewn under your tongue so that when you eat, it's painful so that they think that you won't eat as much. Yeah. It's just, or there's like a, there's like a, instead of, instead of like sewing your jaw shut, there's something that gets like installed on your teeth. And so you can lock it and then you can't open your mouth. Um, there's also something that you put in your mouth that, that makes it so you could have to take smaller bites. So it's like, all of these things are ridiculous and horrific and they're like modern day torture devices. And so, I mean, and this has been going on since the eighties and nineties, like it's just, it's just kind of ramping up. And I think a lot of the, the reason that the journal or the American Medical Association passed and and decided to say that fatness is a disease is because there's so much money involved. You know, the diet industry is like, you know, we spend more money on dieting than we do on college every year. So I think that's really big, but I also think that there has been a shift socially in talking about body image and talking about the body mm-hmm. and body positivity obviously became a really big thing. There is a lot of bad parts of it, but I think fat bodies are being, fat people are being included in media mm-hmm. imagery that weren't around 10, 15 years ago. Um, And so I think that there is this, it's being heavily medicalized and we're not talking about discrimination and in institutional and systemic discrimination, but at the same time, we are talking about how we feel about our own bodies and potentially what that Mm -hmm. means when we interact with other people. Mm -hmm. So it's like, on one hand, I am really mad at the American Medical Association and like, doctors in general, but on the other hand, socially, I've really seen a really amazing push towards thinking about fatness in a critical way versus how it used to be. I mean, I, in my early days as an activist, I would talk to people about 
you know, that I, I want to study fat stigma. And I mean, I've had people laugh at me because they couldn't even believe that that's something that, you know, you would want to um, study. I know pre grad school, there was a, one of my friends who's an academic, she was telling her dissertation advisor that she wanted to study fat stigma and her advisor was like laughing so hard that she had to sit down. So it's like, you know, there is struggle in every single step right. of the way. But, you know, we're, we're kind of slowly chipping away at it in, you know, a way that doesn't feel fast enough for most of us. Yeah. Um, but is very real for how yeah. change happens. Yeah. So, yeah. So do you think with these autoethnographies that some of them would have even mentioned body positivity if they were done now? Um, body positivity? Potentially. Or, I don't know, even like you were saying, the medicalization. So maybe more discussion around bypass surgery and that type type of thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about bypass surgery. I mean, like, you know, they passed since 2013, they passed it so that younger people can have it, um, which is horrific. I mean, that's part of that's, you know, again, my tinfoil hat of why did they pass this when their um, the committee they put together to decide if it was going to be considered a disease said no. I really think it was, you know, not only did we see that happened, but then very quickly they lowered the age requirement for for gastric bypass and other types of surgery. Um, they also got Medicaid and Medicare to start covering gastric bypass surgery. And so it really just opened the floodgates for money to go to those things, mm-hmm. which is why now some of the newest surgeries and newest centers that you have at hospitals are gastric bypass, weight loss surgeries, et cetera. And so, yes, I think that there is, as, as socially, like media wise, we've started to kind of see this, this change. We're not really, it's not happening as quickly in the medical field. And so I think that young folks may, may be thinking more critically about their bodies. I mean, I, you know, this past winter semester, I taught in a high school is the first time I had been in a high school since I was in high school. And I, on one hand, I was like really nervous because my high school experience was horrific. But then on the other hand, I was like, I'm teaching like dual enrolled high school students. Like I'm I'm going to be like the queen of the nerds. Like they're going to love me, you know? <laughs> and it was, I mean, I think there were a lot of people that wanted to talk about, because I talk about my research in class and they were, my students were talking about the fat discrimination that they see that their, their friends experience and right. that their family experiences. And You know, I mean, I had a friend that was like, you know, my sister's heavier than me and we eat the same thing. Like, this is dumb, you know? And so I think that there is having a space to talk about it is so important. And so I think that that is the thing that I think is so important and bringing it into the classroom. I mean, that's what, you know, when I started teaching intro to sociology, a lot of the people in my cohort were interested in, you know, kind of bringing fatness into their classroom too. And I think that it's, yeah, I mean, so it, I do think that there's been a change. It's, but again, it's slow going. It doesn't mean that people are not interested in dieting or not interested in diet culture, that they don't get sucked yeah. into those things. I mean, but that is a very large social issue that is so hard to get away from, yeah. you know? So hard. So hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Uh, okay. So you have a friend who reads this book and really likes it. Uh, what would you recommend that they maybe read next? Man, I, so, there's so many books to recommend. So many books. Um, I know. <laughs> the last 
book that we read on Fat Theory Book Club was The Embodiment of Disobedience, mm-hmm. um, Black Women's Political, uh, what is it? Unruly Political Bodies. And I think that book was really great, particularly if you're thinking about learning about anti-Blackness that's actually talking about Black women. And it's just, it's great. It was written in the mid 2000s. So it's a book that really didn't get the the type of attention that I feel like it it could. But if you're a person who has never read a fat book at all, or has never even thought about your own body, I the places that I started was, again, Susan Bordeaux's Unbearable Weight, or there's, uh, what is it? It's Can't, Can't Buy My Love by Jean Kilborn. Um, she's really well known for, cause she had documentaries that came out that were about women's bodies in the media. That's kind of where like the national organization for women's love your body day came from. But I think it's a really good book to, to think both of them are really good books to think about the way that media imagery really impacts how we feel about ourselves and how we interact with other people. And so that's kind of how, where I would kind of start very Lots cool. of books. You can read so I, many books. I know. I know. I know. There is so <laughs> many. There's so many. Um, yeah. Well, speaking about books, let's talk for just a minute about your podcast. So uh, when I reached out to you, I told you I'm going on a big, long hiatus. And so I am, I, I wanted to get the word out about your podcast because it talks about books too. But can you talk a little bit about the format of your podcast and the types of books you read and that kind of stuff? before we were recording, I said that, you know, I started this because I really wanted to get back into reading while I'm working on my dissertation. Grad school kind of like sucks all of the writing that you want to do and all of the reading that you want to do out of your brain. So I kind of, you know, I wanted to get back into the books that are, you know, being written, catch up on things that I hadn't read or, or came out and I didn't even know about. And so, you know, that's kind of where where it started, but I really wanted to kind of merge my experience as an activist and my experiences as an academic um, together. And so I'm trying to get as many authors as I can on, but also talking to other, you know, activists or people that are doing good things in the community. Um, In April, I had all of my co-coordinators of Abundant Bodies on. And I also had Aruna who started Abundant Bodies with some other activists. Um, and we read All About Love by Bell Hooks. Um, and so we're not necessarily reading fat specific stuff. I mean, most of it's fat specific. This month, we were supposed to um, read a book called In Transit, um, which is about being it's uh, being non-binary in a world of dichotomies by D- Diana Anderson. It came out in July, um, but we had to reschedule. So I'm actually recording that on the 26th. Um, it'll come out shortly after that. And so, yeah, so I'm, a lot of it is really reading books, enjoying talking to people about books, but also talking about what people are doing and, and kind of being excited about the work folks are doing and just having a podcast to talk about fat stuff where it's not, you know, I'm not shoving like a lot of things down your throat, but also can have a little bit more of a critical discussion that isn't just surfacey. And my understanding is that you can like you post when you're going to be doing it. So it's kind of a live. You could go on as as a listener. You could go on at the same time and listen to it in real time. Yes. Yeah. So we record the um, second Friday of every month on which we're not going to record on in September, but we are in October. And so, yeah, so you can log on to Zoom. If you go onto my Instagram, it's Whimsical Femme. I make a post about it. And I think it's 
it could be fat book club it's a tiny url i can't remember i shouldn't remember what it is but yeah so you can watch it live and can take part in it if you want too. Often we'll have people that will just write in the chat. It's very small crowd. I have one friend named Denise that is always there. Um, but otherwise, I've definitely found that more people want to kind of listen to it whenever. So I try to post it the following Monday. Sometimes it takes a couple more days to get it on. But yeah, you know, I really wanted it to be like a kind of your classic book club and that people can can talk about a book, read a book, or just even come to to listen. And yeah, and so you don't have to even read the book if you want to just listen to the podcast. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the joy about it. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, Instagram, you've already mentioned, is there anywhere else people can find you? Yes, I am Fat Body Politics on Twitter and TikTok. Perfect. Okay, well, um, all of that will be in the show notes below. So if you're listening, just scroll down and click. And I, I want to thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on Fat Girl Book Club. Thanks for having me. I feel like we are the fat book club uh, elite of this organization and we are doing great. So. Oh, we got so much out of that. I mean, as you could tell from the intro that I did for you guys, I got so much out of this discussion. I hope you got a lot out of it too. Uh, please remember my next episode is the last episode uh, before the new year for sure. So please make sure you listen because I have a fantastic guest coming on to talk about something that I am quite honestly, I am such a prude that this is going to be a really interesting discussion. I can't wait for you to hear it. <laughs> Please make sure that you connect with me on Instagram, uh, that you still keep subscribing to the show. I hope you do. I, I really appreciate the support in that way. Uh, and make sure you check out Amanda's show, Fat Theory Book Club. Uh, all the links should be below in the show notes. So just scroll down and click. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Uh, I I never expected for the show to have as many listeners as it did. I, I wasn't sure when I started this podcast that I was going to have anybody listen at all. And the fact that you guys are here, it just, it means the world to me. I think you're all really, really special. And I just want you to know that I'm extremely grateful extremely grateful for you listening, subscribing, supporting, reviewing, telling someone else about this podcast. I don't know if I can express that enough. I hope that you are having a fantastic and wonderful day. Keep reading everyone. <laughs>